0: Before we get started, I wanted to give you a heads up that at the top of the show, our guest uses a racial slur to describe a time that he experienced racism.
1: I've only been called a nigger with the hard R Mm. three times in my whole life. And it actually happened in my earlier days when I was seven years old in first grade. I still remember Mm. the exact moment Uh, when I was 10 years old at a skating rink in Chicago And when I was 22 years old at a a music uh, event in Chicago, and all those instances happened by white women, (laughs) which is just really interesting, right? And so then I go into an environment in which I, I maybe have these subconscious perspectives on those experiences in which I'm working with white women every day, I'm managing a lot of white women that are amazing and phenomenal at their work, and in some instances, you know, I've, I've directly reported into uh, some of the smartest women that just happen to be white in our industry. And uh, you know, I often wonder if that impacts my behavior, which certainly willing to kind of chat through.
0: This is Jason Smith. He's been working in the advertising tech industry for most of his career. It's a pretty white field. He's used to being only one of a handful of black employees in his office. But ever since he got promoted to chief business officer at his current workplace, he's become more self-conscious. He isn't just the boss, he's the black male boss of a mostly white female workforce. He told me he really believes in the people working for him, but in the back of his mind, he wonders how they see him. And he also wonders how his past experiences influence how he sees them. And most of all, as the boss, he's terrified of making all of that someone else's problem. Hello and welcome to Man Up. I'm your host Eamon Ismail and on this show we crack questions big and small about manhood. This week, being yourself at work when you can't stop thinking about how other people see you. So, how do you think your employees see you as a boss?
1: Uh, well, I hope that they see me as being super vulnerable. You know, in my career, gosh, man, I've I've had some ups and downs. Seriously, I hope that the people I work with see me as as being vulnerable and approachable and and full of fault. Right, but
0: do you think like that's how they actually see
1: you? You know, I'll give you a really good example of something that kind of helps me or makes me think about how do people see me in the workplace? I was a couple of years ago in an old job I had. I was, you know, I was in a room with a CEO of some huge consumer packaged goods company and and we were meeting with one of our technology partners. And I was kind of going through this presentation and like, it was the weirdest thing like the lady from this technology group asked me if i was from the south which i'm not (laughs) i'm from chicago but i am aware that like you know i've got a little bit of a twang and man it's like one of those things that i'm subconsciously worried about is like how do i sound do do i sound too black do i sound too urban do am, am i super buttoned up you know and it's just like maybe those like small microaggressions can come up in some of the things that I do in work. So when you asked about how do I think people see me, you know, one, I'm always, and I'm being a bit vulnerable, a little bit Mm -hmm. self-conscious about, you know, am I kind of meeting these like prototypical standards of what an executive should look like, you know? And then two is like, when I don't, You know, is that acceptable? You know, does that inspire people to go? Yeah, I should be comfortable with who I am. Or is it like ew, like that wasn't well received. And and maybe I need to code switch a bit more to kind of fit in and have success.
0: You know, what you're talking about is really making me think about the weird reversal that happened in my mind when I first realized that no matter how I see myself, I'm always like a particular person to somebody else when I was a kid I went to like a Muslim school and so I felt like I was just another person and I, th- I thought that and, and this is kind of naive but I thought like the whole world was Muslim I didn't think I was special in that way uh, and it wasn't until we were in a park in Bayonne which is uh, like a traditionally like hyper Italian wealthy neighborhood we were just kind of hanging out collecting rocks looking for rocks that looked cool so we could put them in our pockets and um You know, we kind of got approached from behind by this cop who straight up, like, hey, you guys aren't from here. What are you guys doing here? What are you doing with those rocks? Are you planning to attack someone? And that was like the first moment in my entire life. And I still remember it like it happened yesterday, that I ever felt like, oh, my God, I can see myself as this kid who's excited about science and really likes math and likes sports and likes hanging out. But to some other people, all I'm going to be is just like a Muslim kid or a brown kid. Mm, mm, and I yeah. and in certain areas, I might stick out for that reason. So I feel like that might be where my anxieties come from when I'm in the workplace. And I feel like I'm not in that kind of Jersey City type area where I might stick out. Does that resonate with you at all?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. To your point about these early lifehood experiences, I definitely think back to when were the harshest moments in which I had to confront this idea that others perceive me as being different Mm. and maybe even perceive me as being less than and associating that experience with the same type of makeup of a person that I tend to spend 90 plus percent of my day-to-day work experience with. uh, It is a challenging thing that that I've had to contend with and really kind of used to my advantage and becoming the person and, and the professional that I've become today.
0: Yeah, it sounds like there's like some kind of balancing act happening, right? Like you have experienced some earlyhood trauma and it seems like that's affecting the way that you see yourself in these spaces and maybe that's affecting the way that you see other people in these spaces. Like, can you describe to me what it looks like? Like, can you describe to me a moment where this came up at work and maybe you caught yourself Behaving differently, and, and had to be like, "Wait, why the hell did I just do that? Did that ever happen?"
1: I remember there was an experience with a lady that I currently mentor now, but it wasn't always that way. Mm. <laughs> you know, this was maybe seven years ago or so, and uh, a young, really smart young white lady that that worked at in that agency that I worked at, and a uh, midwestern background. You know, really hadn't spent much time with folks that really weren't like her. And I come in and, and I'm her boss and, and I'm asking her to do some things that maybe, you know, challenged her experience. Right. Mm-hmm. And I remember having this like really aggressive male reaction, which was like, OK, well, you know, if she doesn't want to do what I ask her to do or if. Uh, If I feel like, because feel is important, because I don't know if she has these thoughts, but Mm. if I feel like she sees me as inferior or or she sees me as not being capable of managing her, then I'm going to be really forceful about it. This is what I want you to do. This is how I want you to do it. And no questions are asked. And I remember walking away from those experiences thinking, man, this just isn't me. Actually, this is backwards. Like, this is exactly how it's not supposed to go. Mm. And we evolved into a a great relationship. And so for me, I immediately started to place a practice into how I work with all women, regardless of race, and that I created a space with this particular person in which they could share with me, you know, Mm -hmm. how how was I behaving? You know, how did they perceive my actions? How did they perceive my management style? And I, I learned so much about all of these things that she saw about black men in media and and the areas that she grew up in and all these different types of stories that she was told and what she missed or didn't miss at school and, and how that really shaped her behavior, it helped me, A, learn a lot about myself and confront some of the things that I brought to work that in some cases it may be relevant and I may need to address it that way, but in many other cases, I'm just as guilty of being presumptive. I'm just as guilty mm. of bias. And I think confronting that in a sort of honest and collaborative uh, way not only helped me improve how I think about my work, but I actually genuinely think that it changed someone's life. And we've become wow. the best of friends and someone that uh, I admire and how she works. And I hope I've been a good contribution to to what she does in her career as well.
0: That's powerful, man. That's really, really powerful. Uh But one thing I'm still trying to wrap my head around, right? Because we're talking about improving and being a better boss. Uh, What direction do you think you might be headed in that you'd rather avoid? Like, what what exactly are we trying to improve on here?
1: You know, I think the story that I gave you is like the mythical perfect one, you know? But that's not always the case. For me, I go, I've absolutely and I still am guilty of walking into a room there aren't any days where this doesn't happen, at least once. I walk in and I'm absolutely the only person of color in that conversation. And the immediate bias for me goes, I'm being judged. Uh, There's a downgraded perspective on what my capabilities are. And I need to exude some type of extreme confidence. You know, this term that you hear in in, in hip hop and culture, black excellence, Mm. right? And it's like, there's a joke about that of like, why, do, why in the hell do I have to be excellent all the damn time, you know? And for me, it's like I walk in and I have this over sort of exaggeration of like puffing up so that I can exude this excellence because of all these preconceived notions for me and what I think other people think about me. So if you're asking really what I want to get better at, it's trying to create spaces and opportunities for me to be more thoughtful and then maybe less presumptive about those conditions always existing. Totally. They may be there sometimes, but I can't go into every scenario thinking that this is a biased condition in which I need to be prepared for. I right. think it's unfair to me. And it's also unfair to people that I'm trying to create a great relationship with. So I'm striving to get better there for sure. And I think about the responsibility of being a male leader in the female dominated industry. If I don't create the space to mitigate this fear around you know, anxiety and this fear around uh, being imperfect, I just contribute to the problem. And I think that's just unacceptable.
0: After the break, we're joined by somebody who thinks professionally about how to mitigate that fear, especially for leaders of color. Stick around. So, for a future show, we were thinking about talking with someone who watches internet porn and is maybe thinking about cutting it out entirely. If that's you, leave us a voicemail at 805 626 8707. That's 805 ManUp07. Or you can always email us at manup at slate.com.
2: Step into the world of power, loyalty
0: Ari, um, can you understand where Jason's coming from here?
3: Uh, 100%. 100%. Jason, that's, uh, I feel your brother. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Yeah, good. I'm happy to know I'm not alone.
0: (laughs) This is Ari Joseph. He's the head of diversity, equity, and inclusion at Vimeo, the video platform. Integrating folks from underrepresented backgrounds into the workplace is literally his job. He's been closely listening to our conversation so far, taking notes, and he's pretty confident that he can explain why we're driving ourselves crazy for being the odd man out.
3: So my my background is primarily in law. And if you know anything about law firms, uh, they're PWIs too, primarily white institutions. And um, although it's not uh, majority women, there are a lot of white women there. And I've had white women as supervisors, um, as direct reports, uh, as mentees, as assistants, yeah. as colleagues, peers, everything you said, <laughs> Amon's looking over at me and I'm just nodding my head and, and, and smiling yeah, because yeah. it's I think what you've experienced, Jason, your story is uh, a very common one. Um, and you know one of the things you talked about that uh, just it brought to mind a uh, concept of, of covering, and this is a relatively new academic term to describe what we all do in the workplace when we cover part of ourselves, right? So the idea is that there are essentially four domains that we bring to work. Um, Our appearance, our affiliations, the people that we hang out with, that we associate with. And actually, association is different, but affiliation is who we align ourselves with. And then advocacy, who we we fight for. All of those things, what we're passionate about, all of those things are part of our identity in the workplace, and all of us cover at least part of um, who we are in those domains from time to time. And, in fact, the stats are kind of crazy on this. 61% of people report covering in in their lifetimes in, at work, or in the last year, actually, at work. Um, this is from a study with Deloitte back in 2013. Wow. Uh, 45% – full-on 45% of, of straight white men report covering. Um, 83% of LGBTQ individuals. Mm. And, you know, black people, that's right up there, too, 79% of us. So, um, you know, when, when you're talking about hiding who you are, trying to, you know, change your tone, how you approach um, your interactions with, not just with white women, I'm sure with white men, too, uh, with Latinos and uh, you work with, Latinos you work with, um, with the Muslim people you work with. I'm sure, you know, in every one of those those instances, you're, you're adjusting how you present yourself. And that's a very human thing.
0: Mm. Wow. I feel really validated by that, too, to be honest. (laughs) It's because, I don't know, sometimes I feel like I'm the only one doing it, and it it sometimes feels like when I'm a Muslim person working, it it feels like a performance that I have to put on. Uh, Like I need to be this particular kind of disarming, friendly, Mr. Rogers-type neighborhood uh, Muslim so that people don't feel threatened by me. But it really sometimes feels like I'm just kind of creating that scenario in my head in the first place. So do you have advice for people like us? I mean, as the stats
3: you know describe, everybody for the most part feels this way from time to time. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's it's a reality of life when you work in when you're a part of a larger group, right? Any group of humans, there are rules, and each whether it's a church or, or a mosque or uh, or a community group or a school, right? Like there are codes of conduct, there are cultural norms, and they're set by the majority. And it just so happens that most workplaces in America. Um, white men have set the the tone for what the culture is going to be. And so when we start at, you know, when we're working in an industry um, where we're not from the majority, and this applies to everyone, um, that's not in the majority, and even a lot of people who are in the majority, um, we have to learn the rules and, and we have to implement them. We have to adopt them to a large extent. And so, you know, I'm, I'm going to tell a quick story for myself. You notice I wear glasses. I wear glasses all the time. Um... Wearing glasses, I get treated differently. I, I talked to my therapist about this, too. And, and, you know, I put on a suit in the subway. And I was talking to him about this uh, just a couple weeks ago. Um, like the see parts when I'm in a suit in the subway. <laughs> but <laughs> but if, I'm wearing, if I'm wearing a hoodie, my God, people, are, they're, they're elbowing me. You know, oh, they're, they're, they're pushing me. So, I mean, it, how we present ourselves, that's all, I mean, it's code. And we all have to do that.
1: Someone made a joke about this, one of our clients, and I showed up to a meeting, and you're right, everyone at the agency was was dressed down, very casual, and I kind of apologized for my dress, which uh, is usually a sport coat, white shirt, and slacks, and she goes, that's your uniform, you always wear this stuff. And it kind of made me think of like, man, Maybe I am covering – maybe I'm extending this overt expression of how I look to compensate for what I believe may be a less than perspective from people that I engage with. Because, yeah, if you you were to see me in everything I do, I pretty much wear the exact same thing every single day, sport coat, white shirt, and slacks, Mm. and I've never changed from it. Um, but I know that I make a conscious decision to do so. So I think maybe one of the takeaways are, from what I've gathered and what you said, is one, you know, maybe being aware of what the rules are. And then, two, being aware of when and how you're compensating your nature to cover or accommodate those rules in a way that could be destructive to you and others around you. And I think that's the balance that, you know, I'm
0: hoping to to achieve as I kind of grow in the work that I do. So Ari, uh, it's really cool that we're talking about covering, but I'm starting to wonder, like, is covering that bad? Something that I'm that I'm thinking about right now is how, as men, there's always some kind of performance going on, whether or not we're just performing for our friends or performing for our coworkers. I'm starting to wonder about how that affects like who we think we are. If we're always sort of performing, is it so bad that we're performing at the workplace?
1: I mean, I'm sure Ari has a perspective, but I will say absolutely. It's, It's a horrible thing. And the pretending begins even at an early stage. Pretending starts with, when you fall off your bike and your dad tells you, don't cry, mm-hmm. that's pretending because you're hurt and you want to show your emotions. Yeah. And your job certainly as a man of color is to play it off, play a player. Right. Mm-hmm. That's still all pretending. Right. And so I actually think that this performance in life, as well as in work, has hugely detrimental impacts on our mental health. And also the way that we engage with our families and our friends and even creating new friendships and relationships that are typically impossible for men because we're trained to have this certain sort of outward uh, presentation that can be harmful to us in many ways. Yeah.
3: All right. What do you think, Um, uh, Jason? I I hear what you're saying, especially in in the personal realm, uh, personal part of your life. Uh, I I, I 100 percent agree, I should say. But when it comes to work. The dominant culture sets the rules and this is just the way humans work. Um, what I would say, the prescription for this challenge of, of covering, of, of, you know, performance at work, if we want to change that, if we want to make it better for uh, non-majority people then we have to get in power and we have to change the rules ourselves. So I commend you first and foremost for making it to where you are in your career. Chief business officer is no easy feat anywhere, uh, much less in Chicago. Um, I'm from Chicago, too, so I, I respect <laughs> um, <laughs> much less uh, in Chicago and, and, you know, in an industry that is dominated by a demographic that you're not a part of. But, you know, you, you are now in a leadership role. You have the opportunity to influence other stakeholders in the organization, whether it is, you know, your your peers, other people with the chief designation, um, your direct reports, um, clients, right? Um, you know, it's uh, potential recruits. You know, I'm sure you, you speak at, you know, universities and high schools once in a while. You sound like the type of man who does that. Um, <laughs> right? Like you, all of these things, you are, you're setting a tone and you're being an example uh, for other people in your organization. And, that's really that's that's the most powerful important thing that we can do is is help each other, um, and and help create more inclusive workplace environments, fairer workplace environments for for everyone. So if you have that in mind, and it sounds like you have that in the back of your mind, then you're doing you're doing good, man. Mm-hmm.
1: Good. I love that. I love that feedback. That's a good perspective. Yeah.
0: Um. But another thing we were talking about earlier, and this is something that was bothering Jason was that he was worried about how he might have been bringing baggage, his own personal baggage, into the workplace. How does one begin to identify what parts of their cover is personal baggage? And how do they get over it? How do they not make it somebody else's problem?
3: Yeah. So, you know, there's over 180 Cognitive biases that have been identified by researchers thus far? Over 180. Each one is distinct. <laughs> each one operates in different ways, right? Um, and some of them are more pernicious than others. Some of them impact people in different ways. They interact differently with each other. A uh, quick example of that, of course, is uh, the one I like to use is stereotyping. That's, that's a baseline yeah. bias. And then there's confirmation bias, which uses stereotyping. And this one really impacts people of color and, and work really hard. Mm. Um, there was a study done in the legal industry, and this has been done in other industries too, but it's, it's the study I know best. And what they did is they sent resumes and writing samples out to... Um, oh, yeah, I've heard about this. Yeah, story. out to like, like 50, 60 law firm partners across the United States. And one of the writing samples, half the partners received... Mm-hmm. The writing samples were the same, I'm sorry. The resume was the same for... Uh, everyone who received it, the only difference is that one of the resumes said Black Law Students Association on it. But they purposefully inserted errors into the writing sample, like grammatical errors, um, substantive errors. And the law firm partners who reviewed the resumes, you know, whether they were white or black, male or female, um, straight or queer, they all, for the most part, found twice as many errors in the black candidate. Everything else is the same, right? Wow. So, and this this confirmation bias it applies to it applies to all of us. So, you know these these hundred and eighty biases that exist or plus <laughs> that exist, you know, learn them. <laughs> like, learn them. Learn yeah, them. I mean, like yeah. go on Google, research cognitive bias. There are so many so many resources out there. And once you identify these biases, is it that simple? You just stop being biased. No, and you can never stop being biased. All you can do is mitigate the bias, and and especially when you're making decisions that impact other people's careers. Um, there are two main things you can do to combat the bias. Mm. One we've already talked about, and that's getting other people's opinions, right? The second is you just slow down. Mm. Slow down. Um, before you make a decision that impacts someone else, take your time. Think about it. It's uh, a fallacy in our ability to use logic and to reason. Uh, emotion gets in the way. And when you slow down, right, you, you're able to combat that. And the biases that, that impact you in that way.
1: I love the thinking of slowing down. It's a huge part of my practice. And I actually, I sometimes apply the slowing down too much to just how I speak. Some people go, Can you speak just a little bit faster? But I try to be pretty sort of thoughtful about how I think and how I communicate. And so I, you being aware that those biases do exist as a starting point and that they likely may not go away, but sort of graduating that into, slowing down, observing those biases, why they exist, are those biases necessary? And are there roads to be able to cross boundaries against those biases? I, I have to imagine, Ari, that that's a good step towards success. May not solve all of the issues, but that's probably the right direction, huh?
3: 100. And, and to piggyback on what you said about speaking slowly, I know another relatively famous uh, black man from Chicago who
0: speaks really slowly. <laughs> <laughs>
1: oh, gosh.
0: Oh, you guys are talking about Obama. That just caught <laughs> Um Okay. Uh, one thing that Jason was talking about was how he feels like he needs to behave differently because of a perceived bias against him. Not that he was experiencing bias from other coworkers, but he's kind of imagined that they might have been, and that caused him discomfort. Yeah. Do you have any advice for him uh, on how to I guess better cope with that?
3: yeah, um the reality there is is that everybody has all these assumptions going on about everyone else, and we all think everyone's thinking about us all the time. it's not real, and in a similar vein, we think when people behave a certain way um, you know or or they have a certain tone that it is you know they they're angry at us or they don't respect us or, or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, when in reality, we have no idea what is going on in anyone else's mind. So, yeah. you know, just take 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 a minute and and slow down. And if this behavior continues, if the interactions continue to be problematic over an extended period of time, multiple interactions, mm-hmm. um, then that's something you can have a conversation with that person about um, or their supervisor if, you know, you don't feel comfortable doing it yourself. Um, but that's that's definitely the advice I'd give is just not make assumptions. Assume the best, in fact.
0: That's making me think about something that Jason was talking about earlier. It sounded like one of his anxieties was unknowingly disenfranchising his, his employees by bringing his own like personal biases. And since we're talking about how he's in this position where he's allowed to set the rules, maybe, how does one gradually do that? Is there a way to gradually change the rules in your workplace?
3: Yeah, now that's a great question. And Jason, this is where you have a real opportunity to help Um, other non-majority individuals in your organization, Um, you bring your authentic self to your meetings. You are real as often as possible now that you are in a leadership role. That will give space and permission to other employees to do the same. Mm -hmm. It's really that simple. And, you know, it's frustrating because so few of us make it to where you are. Mm -hmm. and and so uh and also a lot of the time when people from non-majority backgrounds do make it to you know quote unquote the top um they don't want the quote unquote stigma of being the diversity leader the diversity hire whatever and and so they surround themselves with mentees and colleagues and teams that um are all white and male i've seen that too Mm. so Mm. you know by by being cognizant of the realities of bias and your relative privilege um, in the place that you work and by providing space for the people in your company to be themselves by being yourself and by being explicit about, you know, being yourself, you, you, you can do a lot. And the last thought I want to I want to throw out there, last suggestion, um, create an allies program, create an allies initiative, be the leader of it. Right. And, and do it for women. Um, as a man of color like that's
1: that's powerful. I Think I think that would be great. I mean, I, I think it's a great one and it's you know I may just build on one suggestion Which is in addition to people like me being a man of color in leadership and exu- and exuding my natural self to inspire others of color one other thought that maybe builds on maybe why I extend so much to women is for young people of color to maybe think about finding what you would call sponsors that don't look like them people that they can be vulnerable with that are in leadership roles that aren't of color uh that aren't men that aren't women that are different from them but have taken a sincere interest in who they are because those conversations can also bleed out into the back room where you've got david the CEO, white male of the business, who for some reason has taken interest in Shanae. And for whatever that reason is, now Shanae has a space to be vulnerable with David, talk about her interests, he becomes more educated. And now when David is in the closed door where there aren't many people of color, you have a person that's advocating for your interests. So it's not a one path, but maybe it's part of why I really do try to be thoughtful about creating that space for women so that when I'm in a room of men or if I'm in an environment where there's a male-dominated perspective, I have a truly authentic perspective on what's important to the women in our industry. And I can be a voice even though I'm not a woman.
0: That's so true, man. It sounds like you honestly could have given yourself all the advice that you needed. I had the same thought. Yeah. <laughs> that's the show thank you so much for listening if you're enjoying it please hit us with that good rating in your podcasting app and share it with all of your friends we're proud of this show so we really want as many people as possible to hear it also we still need your help in figuring out what we're talking about next we're looking for folks who wouldn't mind coming on the show to explain how they too are a work in progress so if you think that's you call us at 805-626-8707 that's 805-MANUP-07 or email us at slate.com. And don't forget to make sure you're subscribed, because we've got new shows every week, and believe me, you do not want to miss out. Man Up is hosted and written by me, Eamon Ismail. It's produced by Cameron Drews. Our editors are Jeffrey Bloomer and Loan Liu. Gabriel Roth is editorial director of Slate Podcasts, and June Thomas is a senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts. And as always, we'll be back next week with more Man Up.